Hello and welcome to episode 220 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik, here as always with... Jason Rabinowitz. Hello, Ian. How's it going? Hello, Jason. Welcome back to these United States of America. Thank you. How was your venture into the European continent last week? It was good. It was good. I had some very, very nice time up in Copenhagen and Malmo and and Lund. Apparently, it's very easy to get around that region, which was nice. It's much needed time to do basically nothing. Mm. Mm -hmm. Tell me more about this nothing. I'm very intrigued. You might have to wait a few years to have your next opportunity to do nothing. Hmm. Okay. I'll look into it. We'll do some research and get back in a future episode. But welcome back. Before we wrap up your travels, was there anything beyond what we talked about last week at the Aircraft Interiors Expo that is worth mentioning, or should we just move on to new business? No, I think we got the highlights of it. All right, then. I think we got all the good bits. Yeah, now we just wait and wait and wait and wait for, <laughs> wait for certification. 18 months at minimum until anything really flies. So now we wait. Well, that's good. You know who didn't have to wait? Go on. Air India. Oh, I see where you went with that. That's nice. We were wrong. Well, I shouldn't say we were wrong. Our hypothetical did not come to pass. Happily surprised yes. by the simplicity of getting the aircraft out. Yes. In fact, it only took them a few days to get the aircraft back home to India. We're, of course, referring to the Air India 777 that was on its way from, from Delhi to San Francisco that diverted to Magadan in Russia last weekend, I believe it was, early last week. And the aircraft suffered an engine issue with one of its GE90 engines. We, last week, if you didn't listen to the episode, hypothesized based on the worst case scenario that happened to the Norwegian 737 MAX in late 2018, that it could possibly be a few months before that aircraft could depart and make it back to India. That thankfully for all involved, was certainly not the case. It was home in just a matter of days. From what I've heard so far, and I'm still trying to confirm this with the airline, it was an engine oil issue. There were no defective parts or anything like that. So they were able to just kind of make sure everything was ready to go and then fly the aircraft back home to perform further inspection. And it's already back in service. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely a positive thing that they didn't have to do an engine swap in a place that is probably incredibly inhospitable to do an engine swap, but that everything was... I mean, we did mention this at what, what if there was nothing wrong? Maybe it was just a faulty sensor or something. And this yeah, like exactly. Uh, the next thing down the rope to being an actual nuisance error or something like that. But right. best case scenario seemingly here. Yeah. And the aircraft... Already back in service, passengers made it to San Francisco, and all's well that ends well. Air India is indeed still using Russian airspace, so literally nothing changed. All right then. Good for them. No lessons were learned, life continues, and we move on. Well, we'll see what happens the next time around. We move now to the US, where we have a new, a fresh acting Federal Aviation Administration Administrator. This is, I think, the at least the second 
acting administrator in as many years. It is Polly Trottenberg. Trottenberg is a former Department of Transportation Deputy Secretary and also led the New York City Transportation Department for six years from 2014 to 2020. Normally, we don't mention deputy administrators unless they have a very commercial aviation focus or something like that. But I bring up Katie Thompson, who will become the deputy administrator at the FAA, because the current FAA deputy administrator, Bradley Mims, will move to the Office of Small and Disadvantaged Business Utilization. And I only bring that up because I thought, wow, that's a thing. Say that again, the Office of Small and Disadvantaged Business Business Utilization. utilization. Okay. Pretend you don't have it in front of the show notes, and, and maybe you haven't read down that far yet. What do you think that office does? Promotes small and disadvantaged businesses to be better utilized in the aviation industry? Not just aviation. This is for the entire federal government. But yes, basically, it is a job that ensures that the federal government contracts with as many small and disadvantaged businesses, I'm quoting now, across the acquisition portfolio through outreach policy, advocacy, and training to support the health and well-being of the American people. How about All that? Right, then. That's a mouthful. You learn something new every day. Uh, yeah. I would not have thought that uh, Polly Trottenberg would end up as the acting FAA administrator. Anyone here in New York is almost certainly familiar with her and the agency's work under her rather long term there under the de Blasio administration. I do not have fond memories of that administration's work under the Department of Transportation. So this is, it's interesting as a New Yorker, there's definitely a different take that I'm looking at this with than than most people probably would. Interesting choice, (laughs) to say the least. Billy Nolan, who was the former acting administrator of the FAA, has left. He is already at work at Archer, the electric air taxi manufacturer or startup hoping to operate electric air taxis. He has joined Archer as the chief safety officer. And I believe that bit of information was first reported by our good friend John Ostrauer over at The Air Current. So if you're a subscriber over there, you would have known where Billy Nolan was headed weeks ago. This moves us into two plus years without a confirmed FAA administrator because the Biden administration's previous nominee, Phil Washington, who is the current chief executive of the Denver Airport, was shot down by opposition, mainly Republican opposition, but opposition from both parties to his nomination. So we'll see what the Biden administration does if they can get somebody confirmed. But until now, Trottenberg's trotting along. I wouldn't count on it. Sure seems like we're going to go an entire presidential term without a confirmed FAA administrator. If we've gone two years not at this great. point, it's, I just don't I don't see it happening. Yeah, not great. Well, okay. We'll leave that one for now because I'm not really sure I have much more insight to give. But speaking of the FAA, Jason, this story comes out of the FAA reauthorization bill that was introduced in the House last week. And there's a couple things that you flagged, and then there's a couple more that I will flag as well. But let's start with the video recorders 
possibly, maybe, eventually coming to a flight deck near you. Yes. I will say I did not spot anything because this is a 773-page bill, and thankfully (laughs) Bloomberg spotted this somehow somewhere in the 773-page bill. And I I really haven't seen this reported anywhere else, but I was kind of not paying attention to much last week. So maybe this did get a lot of attention and then I missed it. But somewhere in that 773-page bill – is an introduction of finally adding video recording to the cockpit voice and flight data recorder suite, I guess. I don't know if this would be a separate physical recorder or if this would be added into the existing voice recorder. I don't see why they couldn't do that given current technology, but it seems like it's likely to happen. Push through in the the FAA reauthorization bill here. It's not happening imminently. Let's put that in full context. The policy basically here says the FAA will have, where does it say they have how many years? It's three years. Three years, thank you. Three years to study and to figure out the requirements for this thing. And then after that three-year figure out what they want to do processes up, they will give the airlines another seven years to actually install the devices. So we're looking somewhere more like maybe within the next decade, US aircraft of some sort, I'm assuming commercial aircraft, it'll be mandated that they must have video recording on board. And this has been, we've talked to a number of people about this over the last few months and years of this podcast, but video recording, adding to the audio recording, the flight data recording has been on the NTSB's most wanted list for as long as there has been a most wanted list. So I'm sure there are some nice celebrations going on in the NTSB office. And airline unions seem to have gotten everything they wanted out of this for data protections. Of course, only seemingly the NTSB will be able to access the video recordings, not airlines. So data protections that they wanted put in place will be put in place. So it kind of sounds like everybody wins. But Ian, there's more. But wait, there's more. Jason, tell me more. Cockpit voice recording. We've seen a number of times recently how two hours is laughably insufficient because more often than not these days, the audio recording gets overwritten by whatever else happened in the rest of the flight. And this bill also proposes bumping that up from two hours to 25 hours. So that would more than adequately cover almost all aircraft out and back missions, which is great news. Yeah, I think both of these things, and I'll put a link in the show notes to our conversation with Steve Payne from the NTSB when we discussed this initially in depth. But I think both of these things are, and especially with the privacy protections, that the NTSB has all along said, of course. There was no dispute. The NTSB has been incredibly good at maintaining control over all of the recordings that have been processed and recovered from aviation accidents. I mean, they've been incredibly good. I mean, you are very, very hard pressed to find any CVR recordings out there beyond the transcript to listen in. You know they they've been very very good about that. So I can't see how they would be less protective of video evidence. And I think that's one of the important things that they've reiterated over and over again. So it's good to see that this is finally moving through. I think that one of the things, and I haven't actually read this section of the bill because I've been concerned with other sections of the bill that we'll talk about in a minute. But one of the things that I am going to go 
double check on and we'll we'll link the entire 800 page bill if you want to read it by all means but i think one of the important things here is that which aircraft will this apply to because certainly there's a commercial application but then there are also different aviation parts you know that certainly would benefit from having this installed but will there be carve outs for well they don't carry enough passengers or the aircraft doesn't weigh enough or you know things like that so that would be one thing that i'm going to look into a bit more but 25 hours is is fantastic yeah and it seems like that applies for audio and video and that makes perfect sense i mean if you're going to do one do both and just be done with it you know the technology's been there for years it's not difficult to upgrade these things so let's do it Let's do right, it. Let's, let's do it. Also, part of the FAA reauthorization bill are some things specifically related to ADSB that I wanted to mention briefly. None of these are anywhere near set in stone. Most of these things are directions from Congress to the FAA to begin studies. One of them is a study on the encryption of ADSB. Uh oh. This has been discussed in a variety of forums over the past few years. Most notably, Saudi Arabia, I believe, brought a proposal to ICAO where it withered. There was no real interest. The reauthorization bill directs the FAA within a year to begin a study and then within another year to conclude the study on the benefits and drawbacks of encrypting ADSB. How much would it cost? Would there be any benefits? Would there be any drawbacks? And what is the lay of the land to do that? There is no legislation to actually encrypt the signal even because, and this is what I find very interesting, it's an open system. It's an open signal that is used near universally at this point. So I'm not sure what any FAA mandate would do or how that would benefit anybody, but the FAA is being directed to study it if this is in fact left in the bill. Remember, all of this could come out at some point. This is all just you know the first issuance, though having made it into this bill and being publicly released gives it certainly a leg up on being left in. The other bit of ADSB information that I found interesting was a little notice provision that was flagged by AP and that it says that no investigations can begin based solely on ADSB data. Huh? Which I thought was very interesting. Yeah, so you can't begin an investigation. I believe other than a criminal investigation, you can't begin an investigation based solely on ADSB data. I don't follow. I don't follow it either. I'm assuming it was added at the behest of a pilot group or pilot groups, though I haven't heard much about it. I'm waiting to see how that gets reported out and if there is background there. But just wanted to flag those and we'll put a link in the show notes to the bill and some page numbers so that you don't have to read the entire 800-page bill. You can just get the highlights. All right then. So that's the current FAA reauthorization. In a previous FAA reauthorization, there was language that then became law that is now being put into a final regulation by the FAA, and that is bringing secondary flight deck barriers to new aircraft coming to new aircraft relatively soon. I mean, you know, 
given the timeline of how quickly these things usually move, this was a 2018 FAA Reauthorization Act passed into law, and the FAA has finally issued its final ruling. So now new aircraft will need to install secondary barriers. All right. Just only almost a quarter century after 9-11, this is finally Mm -hmm. being put into law here, or not law, into the authorization. That's something. We've seen a few aircraft in the US with a secondary barrier in the past (laughs) decades ago at this point. I think United's Some of United's 757s or 767s actually do already have a secondary barrier that was installed after 9-11. But yeah, almost no aircraft in the US have this, mostly because they don't need it. The cockpit door is armored, and you can't just break that down like you used aircraft. But there's more to it. Yeah, there's more to it. So the secondary barrier has long been sought by flight crew and by cabin crew. Because when you're flying, if one of the members of the flight crew needs to leave the flight deck for any reason, you'll often, see, you'll often see a flight attendant get a galley cart, wedge it awkwardly across the aisle so that if someone gets the not so bright idea to try and storm the flight deck while that door is open for the eight seconds it takes them to open the door and get out and close the door, that's where the secondary barrier comes in. So it's the bathroom door, basically. You use it when the pilot needs to go to the bathroom. More or less. And I wonder if they can even use the actual lavatory door of the forward of the 1L door as the secondary barrier. Maybe there's a way it can swing out and latch into place, negating yeah. the need even for another barrier. Maybe the door itself becomes the door. I guess that would be a little awkward because then then you don't have a door for the lav, but then you can close the flight deck door, and then you got and a little. And then you close uh, the. Lobby. Yeah, this might actually be a somewhat elegant solution, but I have not seen any of the lavatory manufacturers over at AIX last week propose such an idea. But it's not outlandish, I don't think. Yeah, I, the ones I've seen are kind of like a traffic gate, like a swinging, folding barrier thing. So I'm I'm not sure exactly what they'll use. Or I think the other one that I saw somehow manages to fit on top of the existing door and like becomes like a second fold out. But it'll be interesting to see how manufacturers incorporate this into their aircraft. Obviously, anything they come up with has to go through a certification process. So it'll still be a while. There are certified products out there, but I don't know which aircraft they're certified on. So that'll be something to keep an eye on and look out. You won't be seeing on new aircraft, at least, you won't be seeing a flight attendant standing there with a galley car looking very cross. Yeah, not exactly sure what new aircraft we really have coming that this would impact, but I don't know. There's nothing in the pipeline that we could even think about this being on yet because such an aircraft doesn't exist. And I guess we don't know if this, what size aircraft this would apply to? Would this be a 50-seat RJ that they would want this approved on? Not that we're getting any new 50-seat RJs, but I don't know. We'll see. Whatever comes next, they'll have to figure out how to include it. I mean, part 121. So yeah, everybody. There you go. Okay. Yeah. Two years. So it's within two years after the effective date of the final rule. So two years from now-ish, When the flight deck door is open, the secondary barrier will need to be in place. The barrier just has to kind of slow anybody down long enough Ah, that they can close the door. Yellow caution tape. Got it. Yeah. I mean, if you put enough caution tape up, I suppose. 
Well, it says that do would not work. cross. So <laughs> if it says do not cross, then by all means. We'll put a link to the final ruling in case anybody's feeling very adventurous after the 800-page FAA. Yeah, we're giving out a lot of homework They want to want to read that. I mean, sometimes we get emails that say, hey, thanks for putting that in the show notes. I'm glad I got to read it because it affects their job or it affects their interests in a particular way. So, you know, it doesn't cost me much to put a link in the show notes. And if it helps one person, then Jason, it's worth it to me. Fantastic. All right. You remember when we were making fun of the old transonic truss brace wing name? Yep. Well, now it's the X66A. Ah, that it's sounds a, a lot cool more name official. Now. It's got an yeah. X right there in the name. So exactly. it's extreme. <laughs> so the transonic truss brace wing concept is what NASA has partnered with Boeing to build as this will basically become Boeing's what was the NMA that is no longer the NMA that is now whatever they build next. That's what this will become. So before it didn't really have a fun name, but now it does. The Air Force has given it the X-66A designation. That's, you know, I think that's worth noting. This particular aircraft will demonstrate elongated and very thin wings held up by well, a truss. And so that's where the whole name comes from. But now we can just call it the X66A and not have to deal with transonic truss brace wing anymore. That's great. So we don't have to call it the adapted MD90 transonic truss based wing concept adaptation. I mean, you can continue I, I will. to do that. I will. Okay. No, X66A you're the only one. is a fantastic name. I like it. Yeah. Great. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> Moving on. Airbus is also semi-announced, kind of sort of announced. This was an interview with Aviation Week that Guillaume Fari, the CEO of Airbus, gave where he started, not started to, but continued to lay out Airbus's SAF and hydrogen proposals, but also talked a bit about, and this is where things I think get a little bit more interesting, looking to 2035 in a new aircraft using a novel architecture. So looking at possibly open rotor technology and things like that. So I think Airbus is also working on bridges to get to their 2050 goals where you have larger hydrogen powered aircraft and things like that. But airplanes are going to look weird. I mean, after having done the tube and wing and engine thing, and they all kind of look generally the same for the last, what, 60 years? I mean, since the 737, they're going to look weird. And I like I that. I don't think we can rest until we get biplanes back commercially. Great. Let's do it. Do it. Yeah. The transonic truss braced wing concept, now known as the X66A, that takes us closer. It's going to be interesting. Yeah. I mean, all we're thinking right now is when are they going to announce the A22500? Is that even a thing? But no, here we go. 2035 with a new novel architecture. It's, yeah. it's not going to happen. Things are going to get weird if we're still doing this podcast by 2035. Huh. Maybe hey. we'll have the X66B by then. Ooh. Ooh. In the complete opposite side of new aircraft news, Technum is stopping development of the P-Volt. 
the P-Volt was the electric aircraft based on the P-2012 Traveler that Technum has already developed and is already in service. The P-Volt was originally designed, or they were targeting to have 85 nautical miles of range and entry into service in 2026 with Vidro. But after studying the batteries, it turns out that after just a few weeks, the batteries would no longer have a range of 85 nautical miles. It would be closer to 40. After just a few weeks. What kind of batteries are they using that are suffering that degree of degradation that quickly? That's kind of crazy. I mean, I know lithium-ion batteries are consumables. I mean, look at your iPhone and look in battery health. Mine is down to like 87% of its capacity. But that's Mm -hmm. after almost two years, not two weeks. That's, huh. Yeah. So a few things. And yes, that is really fast. But the idea was that to get the energy density on board the aircraft to make it com- – because all of this was predicated upon commercial viability. They didn't want to build kind of an aircraft that didn't meet commercial needs. They didn't want to build a demonstrator. They didn't want to, They wanted to build an aircraft that an airline could buy and operate in a viable way. And so they were dealing with the energy density in order to do that. And when you do that, you run into weight penalties because of the various fire barriers and things that add weight around the batteries. And then you also run into the charging of the batteries because what they said is that in other applications like automotive applications, in consumer electronics applications, when you're using these types of batteries, you can basically derate the charge limit. So say 80% to maintain the health of the batteries. But if you're dealing with an aircraft application, you can't do that because then you're just carrying around empty weight and you have to have more batteries in order to carry the more batteries. It's like long haul flying where you know so much of the fuel that you're carrying is fuel to carry the fuel to burn later. All right. So this, it just did, the economics of everything just didn't work out. So the battery density is not there yet. Yeah, I, I didn't even know this project was a thing. So I guess we won't be seeing the P-Volt anytime soon. No. So this will not be operating in Norway anytime soon, even though they thought they were going to have it into service, which I, I mean, I think this is a, a very generous time frame. They wanted to have it in service in 2026. That's not going to happen. But they're still you know, investigating the situation, shall we say, and hoping that the battery technology will catch up to- They to have moved on to long extension cords. I've been saying that that's how you get in-flight Wi-Fi. Why not power the airplanes like that? Yeah, long Ethernet cables. Even better, you could do one cable power over Ethernet and and boom. Problem solved. Why not have like a pent where you have the cables, suspend the cables at 35,000 feet and then slingshot the aircraft up to 35,000 feet where they connect the wire and then they fly along electrically? What could possibly go wrong? Uh, We're going to call that one the (laughs) X67A. Fair enough. Much closer to the ground and back home. As we discussed when there was the will they, won't they with WestJet's pilot strike, and they didn't because they got a contract, that contract has now been finalized and it is official. Low-cost carrier swoop is going away. Oh, nobody will be too disappointed about this one. 
All right. Yeah. Good for them, I guess. It'll just be reabsorbed back into mainline WestJet. They'll, they'll paint the planes back from where they were once WestJet, then they were swoop. They could be WestJet once again. Whoever paints those planes is like, great, we'll do it all over again. More business. More business. Yeah. So swoop will operate as swoop through October. And then it will be just WestJet again. And then what's not clear is how the swoop aircraft and pilots will be folded back into the mainline operation yet. That information is still uh, pending release. And then we've got more Northeast Alliance news. The judge gave them 30 days to break up. Then they came back and said, that's ridiculous. We can't do it that in 30 days. How about 120? And the judge said, no, 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 no. Not giving you that long. But 30 days might be a little, a little too soon. Also, American and JetBlue are trying to keep a bunch of the parts of the Northeast Alliance. And DOJ lawyers are not happy about that. I mean, you got to try, got to give it to American and JetBlue for trying, but this is- Yes. They're asking to reinstate or, or keep in, I guess, active the parts that the judge said are the most egregious, I think. Basically. Yeah. So that's fun. That's fun. <laughs> I'm going to quote the DOJ's filing from the 9th of June. Defendants now seek to leave some of the contracts governing the NEA in place. Allowing portions of the NEA to remain in place indefinitely would provide incomplete relief. I love legal speak sometimes. The court should reject defendants' invitation to craft a new NEA light on the fly. So it sounds like things are going well. Okay, then. You know what could help distract JetBlue and its passengers from the possible dissolution of the NEA and the possible swatting down of the spirit merger? You know what always cures... What ails you in these situations? I don't know. Tell me, Jason. A new livery. Of course. A new ah, livery. Well, what all what else fails, get the paint out and change your entire identity you've had for, I don't know, a quarter of a century. Probably more <laughs> than that. But at this point, JetBlue kind of unceremoniously this morning just said, hey, yeah, where are we? We, we got a new livery. More blue. It is literally more blue. There, there is more, more blue paint. Yeah, the first aircraft, November 982 Juliet Bravo, a mint configured A321, so kind of restricted to where that will actually end up in JetBlue's fleet network. Go in service tomorrow. It's already painted. No, nope, ready to nope, go. Nope. nope. You are wrong, service. sir. Hey? It's in That's service it. right now. They said it would be tomorrow. They couldn't spare the plane. It's already back in service as All we right. speak. Well, summer schedule, thunderstorms in New York, you know. Oh, yeah, look at that. It's already on its way to San Francisco an hour late. <laughs> to JetBlue's credit, it did storm in New York today. Yes, yes. An hour late is actually doing better than average today. Yes, we'll take what we can get. Yeah, but um, it is blue. The sharklets are kind of a teal color. The rear end of the fuselage and the tail is not well, they're, they're mint. Anymore. They're mint. Yeah, they're, they're mint. okay. They're, they're mint. They're mint. Sure. Get it? Get it? Sure. Well, that's what they say. They say a, a new minty fresh pattern. So that's something. There's also a JetBlue logo on the bottom of the aircraft. I, I think they, they said that, but they have not posted any pictures of that. It's got a larger logo. It's uh, it's blue. I have yet to form an opinion, formally, my opinion on this aircraft. I think it might grow on me. I, I'm not in love with it now. But JetBlue says all its aircraft will eventually get painted in this new livery. It's going to take a long time. We'll see if 
the spirit fleet ends up in this livery too. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Never underestimate the power of a new livery to distract from other. But of course. Events. But of course. Yes. Well, consider myself distracted. Speaking of New York and landing in New York for the first time, Qantas began its Sydney Auckland JFK flights today. The aircraft had landed not long before we hit the record button on this particular podcast. That flight leaves Sydney. Let me get the local times because I did some calculations in UTC, but let's go back to local times to check this out. So it leaves Sydney, scheduled to leave at 9.30 in the morning and arrive in Auckland at 2.30 in the afternoon. And then it crosses the Pacific. It leaves later in the afternoon from Auckland and lands before they left. Well, today it landed before they left time-wise, but it lands close to 5 p.m. So you leave 9.30 a.m. on in the morning and you land at 5 p.m. So it's, it's an eight-hour day, right, Jason? That's how that works? Oh, yeah. Yeah, sure. No big deal. Eight hours. Uh, you don't even need a supplemental flight crew for that. So this particular flight is in anticipation of Qantas's Project Sunrise flights between nonstop between Sydney and New York. The stopover in Auckland is twofold. One, it replaces the stopover in Los Angeles, which was the former QF11, where the flights would come up to Los Angeles, and then you could continue on to New York previously aboard the uh, 747-400 ER on Qantas. But now it stops over in Auckland and also competes directly with Air New Zealand's Auckland JFK service. So two flights operating on that particular route. The total time that we can track, so from the time the transponder turned on in Sydney to the time they made it to the gate in New York is roughly 20 hours and 45 minutes. Oof. That's a long time in economy. Long time in any cabin. A long time in any cabin, for sure. So it's the nonstop would certainly be shorter, but you don't have the ability to kind of get out and walk around. Though I don't know if you have the ability to get out and walk around during the stop in, in Auckland. You're there for a few hours. So I hope so. Yeah. But maybe not. Yeah, I don't know. And and maybe the winds were favorable today, but they landed an hour yep. early. So yep. that's good news. Even taking into account the, the wacky approach into JFK because of all the uh, storms we had today, but at least- They, they had a nice view in Norfolk. Yes. Yeah. yeah, that would have been truly unfortunate to have to do that. But there is one more route that I, I feel we need to discuss. And Go that's- on. It's an important route because it's the first one between the US mainland and the British Virgin Islands. And I am, of course, referring to the new route that began on the 1st of June between Miami and Beef Island. Ah, if you're curious as to where exactly Beef Island is, just open up the Flight Radar 24 app and in the search bar, type the word beef. And there is no other airport in the world containing the word beef. So you'll get the right one. The more you know. That's good. That's good. So if you were looking for a, a new nonstop flight to the British Virgin Islands from Miami, you can now fly nonstop to Beef Island. Average flight time, two hours and 36 minutes. Yet another odd, interesting, fun American Airlines or really Eagle route out of Miami into the Caribbean. They, they do serve quite a number of routes that you would not think there's actual service to a major US airport from, but this is another fun one. I'm having a great time. 
Fantastic. If you don't <laughs> want to do that, you can also fly to San Juan on Inter-Caribbean's Embraer E120 or to San Juan on Silver Airways' ATRs. Those are apparently still around. That's nice. So there were other options to get to the US, but a lot easier to connect on American out of Miami. Sure. Especially if you have more than an overnight bag. Certainly more helpful than the other aircraft. Yes. Stay tuned to this podcast for all your future Beef Island Airport news. This podcast is becoming, that's all it's going to be. It's just daily updates on Beef Island. We're going to go to a daily podcast and we're going to talk for eight hours a day about Beef Island. Man, I hope there's something interesting there. Field trip. (laughs) Let's let's go find out. (laughs) We should go find out. Yeah, let's do that. Where are we going next? See, I got so distracted by Beef Island, I forgot where we were in, Let's the, try China. in the rundown. Let's try China. Okay, from Beef Island to China. Why not? What's going on in China? Why are we there? Well, they make Airbus aircraft there, specifically the A320 family of aircraft. I guess really mostly the A321 family series at this point. But those aircraft made in the Tianjin facility in China have always gone to Chinese airlines. Not anymore. Huh. The first aircraft made in China by Airbus to not be delivered to a Chinese airline is going to none other than Wizz Air. MSN 11309 currently registered as, is this right? B005A. That's fun. Will be delivered to Wizz. So that's fun. Really interesting that I guess there's extra capacity there to deliver aircraft to a non-Chinese airline, but it Makes sense. The A321 is still an A321 no matter where you build it. But I don't know if this goes more to they're not able to pump out enough aircraft in the French and German assembly lines or they're making too much in China or there are not enough Chinese orders. I don't know, but it's definitely noteworthy. Yeah, that'll be interesting to see. I, I saw we, we got the photo on Jet Photos earlier in the week and I was very confused. Because I, I saw the whiz, I, I saw the kind of new tag come through because it was the, the first photo of that particular aircraft. And I said, wait a minute, that's a Chinese registration. And so I thought to myself, oh, okay, maybe you know they, they're picking up secondhand aircraft. It's a former you know Chinese Airlines dropping it up. But no, no, it's brand new. And then and this news came out and made all all the sense in the world. So good for them. You know, I mean, with Wiz's growth, I mean, I'm sure they're happy to take aircraft anywhere they can get them. Fantastic. I wonder who will be next. I do not know, but that's a great question. Now we need something even more interesting. We need to see an American Mobile Alabama built A320 being delivered to a Chinese airline. Sure. Why not? Well, I can think of a few reasons why not. But a few reasons why not, but yeah. it's totally within the realm of possibility. That's true. That's true. So. Next week is the Paris Air Show, and there are rumblings that it's going to be a very interesting show. If nothing else, it's kind of the first Paris Air Show really post-pandemic or post everyone trying their best to completely forget COVID. Passenger traffic for the year, as far as the number of commercial flights that we're tracking, is above 2019 already. It's in most regions, passenger numbers are above 2019 levels. Everyone is excited to go to Paris, and we are by no means excluding ourselves from that. Our colleague Chris and most of our B2B team will be at the Paris Air Show this year. So if you're listening to the podcast going, I need to know as much as I can about the Paris Air Show, 
while it's happening, we've got you covered. And if you're thinking, hey, it would be cool to meet some folks from Flight Radar 24 at the Paris Air Show, if you are going, sadly, Jason and I won't be there, but our colleagues will, or my colleagues will, and you can certainly get in touch with them if you want to meet up with them. Just email them at business at fr24.com, and they would be happy to connect, I am sure. Yeah, I'm disappointed I'm not going, but I've had enough European flight mishaps. <laughs> uh, I'm I'm done. Uh, maybe not mishaps, but just unnecessary stress. I did I did not. Yeah, I, this year it, I just couldn't make it work in in the schedule with everything else. Gestures widely, everything else going on, unfortunately. But the let the planning begin for Frember. Let us be interested in that next year, but. For the Paris Air Show, next week we'll have a full report from Chris about what he's been seeing, what he's seen so far on next week's podcast, and also look for that on our blog and social media, and we'll be sure to cover any of the the major announcements that are coming out of the show. And before we go, we've got a new list on the Flight Radar 24 website called Our Most Wanted Airport Locations. That is where we don't have great ground coverage, or we need to enhance coverage in certain areas around the airport. Think places like Charleston Airport, where we're always looking to enhance our ground coverage, especially because that's where the 787 is built. Airports like Hanoi or Raleigh-Durham, Jacksonville in the US, we'll go to Johannesburg in South Africa. And let's just because Jason and I were talking about this right before we started recording, let's say if you live on the west side of JFK, please apply to host a free receiver. Yes, At the risk of being (laughs) redundant because we've talked about this before, but maybe you're listening for the first time and, and you don't know how our free ADSB receiver kit offer works. Here's what we do. We have more than 35,000 terrestrial ADSB receivers around the world. Thousands and thousands of those are full receiver kits that we send out to you for free that you then install and host for us, feeding us the data. And then in return for that, you get a free Flight Radar 24 business subscription, which is our top level subscription. It includes all of the features on the website and in the apps. And you help increase flight tracking coverage where you are, whether it's where you work at an airport, whether it's living next to an airport, or you live in the absolute middle of nowhere but have power and internet. We would love to have you. So we'll put a link in the show notes, or you can just go on the Flight Radar 24 blog and search most wanted receivers, and that'll take you to that page. Please, if you do work or live near an airport where we need coverage, or you think to yourself, hey, I live near an airport and I can't see planes on the ground, or I don't see all the planes on the ground, you should apply to host a receiver. Please, please, now, please. Or if apply. you work at an airport, specifically if you Absolutely. work at an airport on the west side of JFK <laughs> and have a window that looks out, that, that would be helpful. But these are very much plug and play. I, I can't remember the last time I've had an issue with my receiver that's stashed up in the, the attic of my parents' house that pretty much only goes down when the internet goes down. So these are really, truly, probably the, the least technical issue prone 
electronic devices I have in my life. We try our best. Yeah, it needs power and it needs internet. And in certain cases, the power can also be the internet if you've got a, a hard line. So that that's the easy part. The most difficult part of all of this is making sure that the receiver is situated so that the signals from the aircraft make it to the antenna. We do this by putting the antenna outside as high up as you possibly can. Folks like Jason have long been slouches. Hey, it works. All right. I get great coverage of the east side of JFK. Imagine what would happen if you put the antenna outside, Jason. Never going to happen. Yeah. Anyway, so for new receivers, Jason's been, I think you've been hosting a receiver for what, over 10 years now, yeah? Oh, over 10, yeah. I'm on my second receiver actually since I, I had, I've had mine so long you had to upgrade me to an MLAT capable one. That's so true. I had one that was That's just cobbled true. together with like some low power PC and uh, <laughs> yeah. a couple other, like an Ethernet switch and all sorts of stuff. But yeah, I've probably 12 years now. Yeah. And we have new boxes coming online soon. So that look even cooler because they have buttons now. Wow. I know. So please check that out and please host a receiver or apply to host a receiver if you think that would be something that you would like to do. If you have any questions, feel free to email us podcast.fr24.com. We'll do our best to, to answer any questions that we receive. And if you've got a super technical question that we can't answer, we have a lot of very smart people working on these things that we can lean on. So with that... I will say this is episode 220 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz. Thanks for listening.